So my name is Beth Turner, and I'm Vice Provost for the Arts at UVA. And it's my great pleasure to be here in the Alexander Calder Portraits Exhibition. Um, this um, exercise of uh, focusing in on a single object or, or a comparison of objects, I think it really does allow for us to talk about uh, some um, aspects of Calder um, that I think really carry through his whole career. Um, and speaking of that idea of Calder's whole career, uh, we all know that Calder, at the, at the time of his death in 1976, he was probably the most famous, um, certainly best known American sculptor in the world. He had projects, uh, sculpture projects all over the world. And uh, certainly he was best known for his giant stabiles, pieces of public art. Um, the uh, wire work that you see here around you um, seems not to be in the same category. Um, uh, but in fact, um, what Calder thought, and, and in fact he was faced with an assembly of his wire objects from the 1920s and early 30s at the time of his retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in 1943. And, um, he looked at this group of objects and he said, you know, I think you could categorize this or you could characterize this with a question. What can you do with a single line? And this was the way he communicated this to the curators of the retrospective. And um, I've been thinking about that question, Calder's question, because the uh, single, single line, the single wire line for Calder and wire itself uh, really opened up a path of radical invention for him. Um, and I think it's that path that I want us to travel uh, this evening to consider what he did do with a line of wire and how in fact how he followed the possibilities of that line of wire from um, increasingly uh, from figuration to abstraction. And so um, in thinking about that, I want you to uh, think more about the wire part of these sculptures and a little less, I realize we're in the portrait gallery, uh, but a little less about the identity just yet. Um, but I, I just think that if you think about this, as a, a new form of object, a transparent object, uh, an object that delineates space but doesn't fill it, um, an object that um, uh, has a way of intercepting the light and as Sam just mentioned, gives you a, a twofer. You, certainly see um, the light reflecting off the material line, but then you also see how a second image appears um, and one that is a, literally a moving image um, that uh, is projected against the wall. And so this uh, creates, uh, in, as he 
continues to work with this wire, uh, it creates a, a whole new set of possibilities in his mind. And in fact, as he develops various strategies with these portraits, um, from the first ones that he does, the earliest ones, um, and I believe the earliest one in this room is 1927, uh, to um, the latest one in this room is 1930 with Edgar Varese, which is where we will end our discussion and where we begin. Um, the, the idea is that there is a whole new set of syntax being developed, a new language of form, a new way of thinking about creating art, making images. So this is Calder's radical invention created a whole new order of object. And in fact, um, when you think about it, um, he's really, as with most radical inventions, he's bridging two worlds or bringing together two different worlds. He's bringing together the industrial material of wire. So he's bringing together industry. And he's uniting it with the idea of art. And in the process of creating these, um, these wire objects, he's also linking um, Europe and America. As he's traveling back and forth across the Atlantic um, and bringing these wire objects um, from one continent to the other, hearing the responses of his audience, and also participating in a, a time um, uh, in Paris between the wars when there was a great celebration of what um, the new world could be teaching the old. And in fact, he was able to um, really ride that tide with um, certainly in his celebrity portraiture of uh, jazz performers and um, his um, his celebration of certain aspects of America, um, this seemed only natural that this American artist would invent a whole new way of working with an industrial material and creating this new, new kind of object. Now, um, Calder had art in inven and invention in his family already. His grandfather, Alexander Milne Calder created the world's largest cast bronze statue in the world in 1893. It was the statue of William Penn that crowns City Hall. Um, it was such a phenomenon, um, they had to build a whole new foundry to create it. And in fact, there were plans to take it to the World's Columbian Exposition. Um, uh, but the, um, the, through uh, various political mishaps, um, that uh, plan did not, was not realized. But the invention remains, and certainly it is the great signature for Philadelphia, and a good luck symbol for the Phillies, as I understand. Um, in any case, um, Calder's father, Alexander Sterling Calder, they were a bit name-challenged here, Alexander Sterling Calder, Calder's father, uh, was, a, was also a very prominent sculptor. He was in charge of the sculpture for the Panama Pacific Exposition in 1915. And um, in fact, uh, he 
was in charge of the entire sculpture program. He, um, it, was, uh, it was so extensive that even in the handbooks for the fair, there was a chapter about the sculpture factory, that the, the uh, sculptures were created with these and enlarged with these uh, mechanical processes and this assembly line kind of process that got the, the work done. And of course, the great magic of the World's Fairs was the fact that these, these uh, cities, these so-called cities, could be built practically overnight. Well, these sculptures could appear and be enlarged practically overnight, miraculously. Um, Calder's father created uh, a monument to uh, really the uh, direction of the 20th century in something called the Fountain of Energy. Um, and there's a picture of Calder at the age of 17 standing in front of his father's uh, Fountain of Energy. And, um, and of course he had been behind the scenes at the fair, he had seen the sculpture factory, he knew about his father's work. He um, also had uh, the opportunity to see the exhibition of the futurists, the Italian futurists, which were on display at that exposition. And so to think about the future of art in those terms, and he promptly decided at that moment to become an engineer. So he, um, in 1915, enrolled at Stevens Institute and um, uh, became um, in, involved in the uh, specialization of mechanical engineering. So uh, four years after graduation, we find Calder back at the family business. He makes the decision that he doesn't want to be an engineer. What he really wants to be is an artist. And the way he characterized that decision, and I don't think it's entirely fair to the engineers, and certainly Calder did stay in, in good terms with his, um, his uh, classmates at Stevens, but he did say um, that it, it, it sort of stuck with him that um, engineers thought that good enough was best. And what I think he was meaning by that was that uh, they certainly wanted to assuage risk. They certainly wanted to create things that um, were not a one solution uh, item, as an artist would create a one solution item. Um, so it was that kind of averaging out of uh, risk that probably uh, led him to think that that kind of profession wasn't for him. Because he was all about adventure, and he was all about play, and he was all about finding the next thing. And um, so he, he um, what does he do next? He goes to the Art Students League, and I think we have some wonderful paintings from his time at the League, a portrait, of, he does a self-portrait. What's so um, interesting about this is just how, what a conventional choice he made. He follows his father, his father's a teacher at the League, um, and in fact, he um, takes classes with John Sloan, who is a friend of his father. Um, he uh, paints uh, subjects of the city, which uh, certainly John Sloan and other um, of the progressive artists uh, known as the Ashcan School were uh, doing. Um, he follows along these very conventional lines, um, but at the same time, he can't seem to resist the fact that he had this engineering training. So he thinks a bit like an engineer, too. So he starts engineering the act of painting. 
So he creates like a belt to carry his um, inks and paints with him. He creates a whole rigging for the, the uh, canvas to be on a telephone pole. So he begins, uh, this engineering training stays with him. Well, um, and, but he distinguishes himself there as uh, a draftsman. Uh, he has a knack for drawing with a single line, and I think if you look at the drawings around this gallery, you can just see how fluid uh, he is with this single line that seems to flow from contour to descriptive line to uh, finding a detail to recognizing a volume. Um, this is something that came naturally to him. And he was uh, known for this. He, and in fact, in 1926, he publishes a book, uh, an instruction book for young students called Animal Sketching, which is all about how to look and draw with this um, single line. Um, so this is something that he's um, known for. He follows this path. And then, um, just as his parents had done and his grandfather had done before him, he goes to Paris. Uh, he chooses to be um, an artist in Paris. This is following, once again, in the family footsteps, and yet always with a, a different twist. Um, he had made a living in the States as a, a commercial illustrator and a reporter for the, uh, uh, sort of a, a visual reporter for the Police Gazette in which he had done um, sports, um, portraits of sports uh, celebrities, performers in the circus, uh, boxers, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, this uh, experience with the commercial art world and the art of, um, uh, of uh, newspaper illustration and magazine illustration really served him well when he came to Paris because what they were looking for, what the French were really looking for with the Americans was this way of um, seeing in a new way, acting outside of convention, acting outside of uh, tradition. So Calder begins um, doing portraits again, but this time he does a rendering um, an object rendering of a miniature circus and circus performers that the people in Paris could recognize, or at least the type performer, the types of performers that would be would have been known in the in the French circus. Um, and he was known for the accuracy of the organization of this uh, miniature circus and um, the accuracy of the. Uh, the motions, the sequence of the acts, um, and, um, the not, and not for the specific description of the figures, because the figures themselves were made out of cork and, and wood and wire and cloth. And um, Calder became very popular in Paris for giving these performances of this miniature circus. I like to think about the miniature circus when I go into uh, the gallery that has the portrait of uh, Lindbergh's Landing, uh, the wire portrait of Lindbergh's Landing, because Calder puts himself into this uh, scene, and he's literally holding Lindbergh's plane in his hand so he can get a better look at it. And in fact, uh, he, he, in truth, he never saw the plane land, so maybe this uh, reconstructed uh, 
uh, event then gives him that opportunity. Well, so picture this grown man, uh, grown bear of a man, really, uh, uh, se uh, seated on the floor on his hands and knees, performing, holding these toy um, or these miniature figures and being celebrated in Paris for being a realist about the circus. It was quite a phenomenon. And so he got a lot of feedback from his audience. And what he heard uh, from the audience, and one of the most important things that he heard, was the suggestion, or maybe it was a challenge. Do it with a single line. Can you make a figure with a single wire, a single wire line? Can you do it all in wire? Now, what that would require, and what you see in front of you, is the idea that this wire line that he would need to bend and, and manipulate this wire line with his so-called American tools, his pliers, uh, and uh, start kinking that line and bending it and twisting it in space to form the contours. Then he'd also have to sort of compress that, just as a caricaturist has to compress um, a way of seeing um, a figure, creating a resemblance. So you pick out a particular detail. And one of the functions of these sketches that you see, these preliminary sketches that you see um, beside uh, some of these wire figures, really has to do with the um, way in which Calder would find a profile, begin to see an angle, look from the front and from the side. You can see that with Verez, he is looking at the profile, and he also wants the frontal view. Uh, there's also one more drawing um, at the Calder Foundation of the Verez. I believe these are at the foundation, yes. Um, I, should, I saw them yesterday, actually. Um, but there's one line. He does a profile where he doesn't lift the pencil at all, and he does this drawing of Verez, and I think he tries to see how much he can bring into this one aspect of looking through the profile. But um, again, it's seeing and selecting and finding this uh, transition in space. And so um, that, that requires a certain way of looking and seeing. So in looking at how this um, evolves or changes over time, I thought it would be really helpful for us to um, move our attention over here to Calvin Coolidge because um, what you see here is a portrait that reads very well from the front. But, and this is one of his earliest wire portraits. But when you walk to the side, I think you're allowed to do this, uh, you walk to the side you do not, it, it, it starts to uh, lose its definition. I mean, it, it is a wonderful object in space, but, um, or, or if you stand to this side, you're not really sure what you're looking at. I don't know whether um, you've had a chance to do this already in the exhibition, but what you find is that this line uh, and we, you, it's unmistakably Calvin Coolidge uh, from one aspect, but it begins to lose something. And I think that might be why our, our installers 
turned it a bit, turned it on the angle so that you could capture all the features in this one, from this one vantage point. But what Calder will start to do as he creates these, as he continues to create these, um, he will start to observe his own work and begin to see how these planes start to intersect. And he begins to, to understand himself uh, in a whole new light. Now in Paris, uh, when um, these were first seen, they were immediately hailed as uh, a new American form of object. Obviously, uh, American woodwork with industrial materials, and American wood create this. And so Calder was given a lot of leeway um, by, the, by the French. Uh, the, the American audiences uh, thought it was quite a maneuver to be able to do this. Um, in fact, um, they, they said he has emptied out sculpture. He's made uh, sculpture out of empty space. And um, knowing that his father was a portrait artist and used to doing his uh, portraits out of bronze and certainly the very heavy um, starting his sketching with uh, clay and then moving on um, to the uh, final medium. But um, what Calder was the subject of newsreels saying sculptor discards clay. He was seen as a, someone who had rejected his father's medium, someone who was challenging the whole definition of what sculpture would or could be. He was discarding clay. And um, when he took the wire works to Germany, uh, an art historian by the name of Hans Kurlis, um was absolutely sure that uh, he could create a film that would demonstrate how Calder's work was actually drawing in space. And so um, he, um, he had in his um, film, he has Calder uh, sketching on a pad, just as you have these sketches here, sketching on a pad um, two uh, circus acrobats, uh, one holding up the other. And, um, and then in the film, Calder is bending the wire. And by the end of the film, he has um, the, the um, finished piece. And by, actually, by 1930, uh, Calder had gotten so good at this that the story is, is that um, when he had a show at the, Museum, uh, the Contemporary Art Society at Harvard, um, that he actually showed up with a roll of wire and made the show on the spot. Now, I think that's a bit apocryphal, but at the same time, uh, it, it certainly is true that his facility with the medium, his ability to visualize um, images in space, and he, his ability to create a more complex and satisfying visual experience with the wire um, by 1930 was absolutely true. And so that's when we enter into um, Edgar Varese. And I'm just going to tell you briefly about um, Varese and Calder. I think if there was ever anybody that entered into one of uh, Calder's circus audiences at the right time and the right place, it must have been Varese. Because Varese and Calder shared a lot of the same interests. Both had engineering training. 
uh, both were extremely interested in mathematics. Now, Verez uh, was about 15 years older than Calder. He had come to America in 1915, so he was a part of that wave of the first uh, European artists who uh, had come to America during World War I and began talking about and celebrating the American city, in particular New York. And I noticed that um, you've captured beautifully um, Barbara Zabel's wonderful essay, um, a wonderful, actually, entire book about the portraiture. But she brings out this point so beautifully um, that Verez wanted to capture the roar of the city in his work. And that, um, that, that, that roar, um, how do you see a roar? How do you capture a roar? Uh, really, for him, really had to do with these discarded random sounds that were considered extraneous. You know, I don't want to hear, I need to get rid of that other noise so I can listen to the music. Well, Verez was saying, no, no, the, the street sound, the, the honking horn, the airplane propeller, all of this forceful uh, sound needs to be a part of the form of this music. So he said music had traditionally three dimensions, a, a vertical dimension, a horizontal dimension, and um, a rising and um, diminishing dimension. And he said there was a fourth dimension in music, and that really had to do with the journey of the sound. The journey of the sound into your ear. The idea that there is this, that sound is actually something that travels and goes on a journey in space. So this idea of space and this idea of this visualization and recognition of um, what this other dimension is, is something that compelled Calder. And he, he really took it on in terms of this portrait of Verez, if you come around, and again, you need to walk to either side of this and start to realize what each piece of wire is doing. And by the way, how many pieces of wire do you see here um, operating? It's more than one, wouldn't you say? Um, well, think about that for a while, because at, you know, in order to answer that question, you need to follow each line, don't you? Then you need to see what planes they uh, begin to occupy in space. And then you need to see um, how they begin to intersect to create this moving picture. Uh, but Calder, at this point, by 1930, really began to think that he had, in fact, created a new order of object, that this really was something, this new kind of transparent object uh, gave him a way of thinking about seen and unseen forces um, in life, uh, the idea of capturing this, uh, the idea of uh, capturing movement, the idea of volumes and vectors and densities that form um, our uh, our physical world could be something that could be um, understood as an experience, an aesthetic experience with this new kind of medium. And it, I think the abstractions that Verez was talking about, this journey through space and this idea of these, this kind of universal aspect to these 
um, components of um, our world, um, certainly the physics of our world, and its ability to be translated into art, prepared uh, Calder uh, to see, to walk into Mondrian's studio and all of a sudden understand that he wanted to become an abstract artist. So that these planes beca uh, became um, uh, geometric shapes initially. But he began to think that the idea of resemblance was not necessarily um, the, um, what he was driving at and what, he, what really thrilled him. What thrilled him about the circus was the way it could operate in space or the way the space could be constructed and then collapse or the, the way in which um, he was able to observe the movement of people and animal and to capture someone's expression, the liveliness of them uh, in a portrait really had to do with something other than pure description. So Varez um, is, his portrait floated high above Calder's first uh, exhibit of abstractions in 1931. So I think that uh, thinking about this new kind of syntax, think of, thinking about volumes and vectors and densities, when you walk into the next room and you see the portrait of Helen Wills um, you, and you see her reaching, think about Calder thinking about the trajectory of that line in space. When you see Rockefeller swinging that golf club, Think about how Calder, as an engineer and an artist, and creating these new forms of art, um, would be thinking about the, the arc of that movement uh, and the beauty of the arc of that movement and how he, he, he wanted to create these beautiful objects for all of us to appreciate and become aware of. So I hope um, you have some questions for me. I'm, Delighted if you um, want to follow up. I'm sure I've forgotten yeah. something. Well, the, one of the interesting uh, discoveries of this exhibition is that Calder's self-portrait is actually from uh, 1968. And, and the, they have photographs to prove it. They have the photographs of him actually making it. As a, but it is a, it is a young Calder, uh, or at least uh, an idealized uh, figure. Uh, he, did, he did do some later, and, and I think there are um, a few, but not many. Uh, the, the, um, there are paintings and drawings. Um, he generally tend to use portraiture itself uh, to relate to people, but they weren't the wire of portraits. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that the whole point of the moving picture and the idea of how an object revolves with its shadows uh, absolutely um, connect with the understanding that you can sculpt, um, that you can uh, compose, I mean, movement. And that they do take up, they, they command space. Look, you had to have a whole big platform here. This one, but he's commanding.
the space. There is a mobile across the way that is uh, a portrait that combines the wire work with Saul Steinberg. So he had a lot of fun with that. The lady with the umbrella. He has so much fun between, working between the, the tongue-in-cheek world between representation and abstraction. He said that the mobiles are um, the only reality or the, the relationship to reality in the mobiles was their manner of reacting. And of course, they are objects of this world and, and subject to all the laws of nature that we are. So. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. We're here almost every Thursday to take you beyond the frame.